to Titillating Talks. And we're busting fitness myths. I'm Laura. I'm Hallie. And this is Titillating Talks. We're best friends and we're busting fitness myths. And sharing honestly. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> Some ASMR for you. Oh, yes. That's Chewing. Peach. Yes. <laughs> so this will be interesting because <laughs> right now um, there is a cat sitting next to me who's <laughs> trying to invade all of my computer things look at a this. cat she said oh my gosh look at this beautiful my mother-in-law's cat he's a Maine coon oh yes hello his name is leo hello <laughs> <I love> leo <laughs> but he's a little he's a little rascally he's a little naughty and he's trying to eat all the cords and things so we'll see what happens all right all right leo <laughs> leo and leo season yes exactly how are you i'm good i'm very happy about my peach selection it looks delicious I re- it looks very I did. <laughs> uh yeah it's delicious it's um perfect and i did a pretty i did like you know like you're like i just need to get this workout in kind yeah. of workout you know yeah. but like then that means you're not really taking long breaks so you're just like i'm gonna do these swings i'm gonna do these squats I'm going to do these like thrusts. I'm good. I'm just going to do them. <laughs> and I did that for like 35, 40 minutes. And I was like, nice. oh my God, I need to eat. I have to eat. Mm-hmm. If I just sit down now, I don't know what's going to happen brain wise. So then I made um, some toast with some peanut butter and um, honey. So then when you were like, yeah, when you were like, I'm going to be <laughs> late, I was like, perfect because this peanut butter situation. <laughs> there's a little bit of a uh you know problem when you're trying to move your mouth around so it's exactly uh, why I've been really sorry I was just gonna say it's exactly why I was late because I was making myself peanut butter toast ow the cat has scratched me <laughs> Leo, uh, Leo get out of here <laughs> he was like give me the toast um yeah I I'm really into sourdough lately and so mm-hmm. um a little sourdough, white sourdough toasted with some like peanut butter and like yeah. honey drizzled on top. That was mm-hmm. like perfect. At first I was just going to go for the butter because like butter toast, why not? Yeah. And then I was like, Laura, Laura, you need a little more sustenance. sustenance. Yeah. A little you more sustenance. Threw, you just threw around this 16 kilogram kettlebell <laughs> with minimal breaks. What I was doing during my breaks was packing up the laundry so that I could take the laundry after we're done. So it was one of those, it was one of those workouts, like a a real mom stay at home working. Where you're literally thinking about like 12 other things that you need to be doing, but you're like, I must get the movement in. It is a priority. So this is what we're doing here. Have to get the movement in. Oh my God. Hello. Hello. So hello. Yeah. I don't know. It's just been chaos. I told you. Yeah. My mother-in-law fell. Oh yes. Oh my God. Is she okay? I mean, that's questionable. Um, you know, she falls often. She has a history of falling. She broke her hip a few years ago Mm. and you know, it's just one of those things that it's hard to recover once you've broken your hip. Yeah. 
Um, and prior to that, she had like broken her ankle and as uh, some other time she had broken her or she broke her foot. I think she, maybe mm. she broke her foot, not her ankle. And then some other time she like injured her knee. So basically she has no breaks. She has no breaks. She's right? like so, been injured like the past few years. She's been injured the past few years, but literally her braking system when she's in, in a forward motion oh. is non-existent, right? Wow. So often she'll put her foot down and it's like slow motion. You just see her like, you like you don't even know how to respond because you don't even realize it's happening because it's happening very slowly where she'll just like go down. Like her foot, her her eccentric phase, right? Of swinging the leg forward mm. and then the foot landing on the ground and her quads supposed to kick on to hold her up against gravity but it doesn't right and so her weight just keeps going forward and then she falls and so this happens often well she like stands Whoa. up and she'll like keel over or you know she tries to run after renee which is not a good idea and she can't break so she'll like fall over uh, this time it was a little bit more serious she uh, fractured her l7 now they're saying that there's like a bunch of fractures and they Whoa. don't know which you know, that, that some of them are from age and then maybe there's like a fresh one. So, you know, it's just another one of these reminders of like, you know, keep your body as strong as possible because, you know, it's it's really hard to recover from trauma period. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter what age you are, but especially once you get over the age of 65, which we're going to kind of like talk a lot about this today anyway. Right. Like once you hit that age, you know, your body changes. And if you didn't utilize your capacity when you were younger, when you were in your 20s, your 30s, especially your 40s, right? Like I'm really feeling that now. 40 is a weird turning point where I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I can feel things, you know, like that I never felt before. And I realized that it is the evolution of my body in space, you know, um, if you don't use it you're gonna lose it and you could try to get it back but it takes a lot more to get it back at the age of 50 and 60 and 70 yeah then especially because biologically you know humans are living longer now Mm -hmm. than we Mm -hmm. ever have in the past our you know but biologically our our bodies start breaking down you know especially Mm -hmm. like after Mm -hmm. the age of like 60 it's you know Mm -hmm humans weren't living that long hundred years ago, even, you know, less than that. So it's one of those things where you have to really, you know, take into account your genetics, take into account your lifestyle. We talked about it before building muscle and strength training is super important, not only just to be strong, but also to promote better bone density, because like we were just talking about Laura's mother-in-law falling, like that is so common amongst people mm-hmm. above the age of like 60, 65. Most people above that age don't get up or they have a fall. And that is the thing that leads to basically their demise in a short period of time, because once they fall and break something, they don't heal properly or they can't physically do it because they don't have the strength to. Um, and then it just leads to further and further basically like dissipation of of your nervous system of your musculature and then you're basically just unable to support yourself anymore so okay. you know and 
no movement also correlates to loss of you know cognitive function too so that's a big thing mm -hmm. as we yeah. age and a little bit of a you know like an easter egg because this is kind of what we're going to end up talking about or i'm going to end up talking about later i have a lot of stats from the cdc you know about yeah. falling. <laughs> but like let me tell you it's it's really interesting the way my my own brain works because i see something like this happens and i'm like work out you know what I mean like it just like goes right back into like well now let me like check back in with my programming what's my programming been looking like have I been progressing myself have I been pro progressing my clients like you know maybe I should be doing you know I which I usually do anyway like little tests you know assessments to see where we're at because mm -hmm. Q4 is coming around and kind of seeing where we are in our cycles but like there's nothing like seeing that as a fitness professional and kind of using it as a jump board to remember <laughs> to make sure that everybody is moving in the right direction, you know, especially my older clients, because, yeah. you know, I mean, fall falling is not normal, but it is something that happens. It's very common. Know? Yeah. And it's just making sure that we're prepared mm -hmm. for falling and that our body has both the capability to fall dare I say gracefully right like learning how to fall so that you're not like holding your arms out and trying to catch yourself and then breaking your wrists or something like that right, right. um and even and the bigger thing sorry I was just gonna say the bigger thing I think for most people is learning how to get back up because a lot of people just don't know how to get up off the floor you know after right. the age Getting of like 60 important. 65 like they fall down maybe they hurt their hip or something like that but most of the time people don't even break bones but they just can't literally get back up because they don't have the strength to or know the movement patterns mm -hmm. to get up off the floor you know making sure that people are in a position where their body can heal because the structure itself is stronger than maybe one of their cohorts that isn't as strong Right. Okay. Because the resilience of literally your bones, your joints, your tendons, your ligaments, your muscles to bounce back really is specific to well, what what was going on inside of you when you fell. Where are these? Uh, is this a strong structure that fell over or is this a weak structure that fell over? Because the weak structure that fell over is not going to heal the same way as a strong structure that fell over. Right. Right. Somebody yeah. like somebody, you know, I've heard some examples. I mean, um, the Peter Atia has a um like an online community. And there was somebody that recently posted who's in his 60s, bike rider, got hit by a car, mm. broke like fractured like 10 ribs, broke, you know, bones, all sorts of stuff. And the doctors basically thought he was gonna, they were like, there's no way that you can recover because usually people at this age that even break or fracture three ribs don't recover. And he had a full recovery. And he's like, the only, I think the reason why I recovered is because he had been following, you know, this, this lifestyle that Peter Atia and like Huberman and all these folks that are big influencers have kind of like pushed, which is like, carry heavy shit, move yeah. around, go outside and stop stopping, right? Like keep going, keep moving your body. Um, but that's a great example, right? You have somebody who like, literally the doctors are like, oh, well, this is it for you, right? And they were like, wow, it's a miracle that you recovered. 
but is it a miracle or like, is it that I've been treating my body the way I should treat it, which is moving it around and making sure I pick up heavy stuff and, you know, I walk and I get outside and I, this guy bike rides, right? He does all these things five days, six days a week. Is that a miracle or did I just treat my body the way I should be treating it so that I can survive life? Yeah. What I mean, is, that's, what is that? sorry, there's the cat is trying to like land on my laptop. He's crazy. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> Just like the like, whole time I'm like watching him like here? crawl behind the computer and look down at it. Like he's about to pounce on it. Sorry. Stay over there, Leo. Um, no, but yeah, that's yeah. totally, um, I'm going to get into that a little bit with some of the research that I did about, you know, like mitigating pain and injuries and how to basically take your health into your own hands, take your body into your own hands and do the thing, do the things I should say, because there's many things <laughs> you can do um, to make sure that you're prepared if an injury does happen, because it can happen to anyone. It's not just happening to yeah. old people that are falling down. Like you could, you know, be walking around the city and someone, you know, bumps into you and you fall down the stairs in the subway or something like that, you know, mm -hmm. like, what are you going to do? How is your body going to react to something like that? Have you been working out? Have you been, you know, doing uh, a movement practice regularly? So your muscles are used to pressure and tension and stress right. and things like that. So we'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, it's totally going to make a difference if you're a regular mover, if you're regularly strength training, especially because our bodies adapt to and love tension so right well it's like athletes right we watch these athletes they're not superhuman it's just that they've built their bodies around their sport right mm -hmm. and they hold pressure and tension in their body on a regular basis that's what they do even during the off season they're doing something right like they might be more in a recovery mode but they're still moving around for the most part right unless you're shack like there's like some people who are known for like being like fuck that not doing it um, but then it left him prone to injury, right? Like he mm -hmm. has like this long story about obviously a very successful career, but towards the end, he was kind of jerking off and not doing anything during the off season. And it left him susceptible to having a bunch of injuries because he was over 200 pounds and very tall in a sport that required him to be able to be buoyant, right? In space and also yeah. hold tension, but also have enough uh dexterity, dexterity and flexibility yeah. through his ligaments and his joints right so he kept he's eventually ended up in a situation where yeah he was just busting his ankles all the time but that's a very Ooh. specific right yeah that's a right but my point is these athletes the reason why they're able to do that right is because they're doing it all the time and their bodies are like tanks especially like football players rugby players soccer players like they're moving yeah. all the time they're training all the time. And quite frankly, their training isn't that different across the board, right? Because most of their movement patterns are the same. There's going to be like some nuance maybe in their plyo, but in terms of just their conditioning and their strength training, they're all trying to do the same things, right? Because they need to be able to react the same way and their bodies need to be able to accomplish what they need to accomplish, which is not get injured. Really, it's not winning. Winning is <laughs> not getting injured for them. You know? Right, right. Like when, when you're looking at stats, it's how many people are on the injured list. And that's a sign of something behind the scenes that's awry. You should not have that many people on your injured list. You don't have to win the game for you to be winning, right, as a team, if you don't have that many people on your injured list. If you have a lot of people on your injured list, then that's a sign that you're not gonna have that many people out in the field that you need. 
yeah. you start running out of options, right? And so it's actually more important to have people that are able to recover quickly and aren't getting injured. And that comes about down bleh, words that comes down to the strength training that comes down to the conditioning that comes down to pain, pain management, right? Which we're going to get into a little bit today. It's September. Is it September? It is September. Well, we're recording in August, but this, this <laughs> episode September. This episode is coming out in September, and that is Pain Awareness Month, which is why pain awareness month. we're talking about pain. Pain, yes. Um, so pain, as far as I was able to uh, learn, is basically the oldest medical condition mm. <laughs> to exist in the world, uh, you know, without getting into too much detail, because I feel like it just, it it basically was like, the same things happening over and over again, right? So when you go far back to like the ancients and you go even maybe beyond that, you're going to, let me pull up my notes before I say the wrong thing. But yeah, you go back to like the ancient cultures, basically they knew pain existed, but outside of injuries that they could see, they assumed that it meant that you were being tortured suffered by demons or the gods you had done something wrong um like something evil spirits doing it to you (laughs) something was doing it to you unless it was obvious like if something had happened and now i could see that your body is open and like oh okay that's obvious pain and that's like mortal but like if you just had like mysterious pain and this makes sense right because we know about like the the what do they call the salem witch trials Mm -hmm. right like women going into the water because it was cold, because they were probably going through menopause and then being hung because they were floating because we're buoyant, right? Like (laughs) (laughs) swimming were hot. Right. They were just trying to cool down. But no, you know, for them, it was like, oh no, something is awry with these folks, you know? And uh, they, at the time, thought it was demon spirits, demons, the gods punishing them, whatever. But they did know that they could use drugs for pain relief and so pre-inca cultures used coca leaf Mm. uh you know opium was used in ancient egypt it was used in india it was used in china um you know that kind of continued on opium has been used for a very long time uh the ancient greeks used it um you know during the classical period and hippocrates and all all our our fun folks like that they started using like herbal remedies they also started doing bloodletting which would be what we would call phlebotic phlebotomy yeah Yeah. like taking extracting the blood out (laughs) taking the the leeches on people's skin and like pulling their blood out and being like yes you need more bloodletting get the sickness out of you and it's like um actually i think they need the blood like the blood is essential the blood is essential uh and so this is also like early medicine and so they believed in what they called the four humors and that was it was four different body fluids and they believed that each of the body fluids, each cause certain illnesses and personality traits, and that each of the body fluids were also controlled by the four elements. Mm. So there was blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. Black bile? Yeah. Clearly, we was that? Girl, I don't know. (laughs) You know, they were unwell. They were very unwell. You know, we're dying before age of 30. Right. But this is also, you know, kind of piggybacking to the last episode right this is around the time when they started to understand that you could use minerals and like certain foods and herbs and they started understanding like moderation right like too much of something was going to kill you maybe these were the folks coming up with the black bile and <laughs> like 
too little of something could also be problematic. They were trying yeah. to figure things out, but they didn't really have a scientific method at that point. They, so it was just no, like, this is like yeah. just the beginning of the scientific. Right. Okay. Everything. Right. And then we go into like 300 BC. That's when acupuncture was first recorded in Chinese medical test uh, text. Um, at this time, they thought that the heart senses pain and not the brain. Mm. Uh, Interesting. There's a lot of this flipping back and forth. They don't really, there's like basically a battle along the first like few hundred years, thousands of years where sometimes they think that the pain is coming from the brain. Sometimes they think the pain is coming from the body. Sometimes they think it's coming from the gods. They really can't like figure or sometimes they think it's coming from like the minds, right? They really can't like figure out where that is. And honestly, that's kind of where we are now too with like chronic pain. They don't always know when it's a newer science, but we'll get to that. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> as we get into like late antiquity, so we're talking like 50 AD, they start using like eels and electric fish Ooh. for like headaches and arthritis and other pains. Um, they start to understand that there is a central nervous system and that there's like a signaling between that and pain. They start to understand, like, if I put my hand on fire, that that, you know, I'm going to feel the pain and that that's going somewhere back to my brain. And they start doing tests and they kind of understand that. And they also understand that there's disease that can cause pain. So they understand that it's not the gods. <laughs> and they so also wait, know sorry. that. At this yeah. point, were they doing cadaver like research at this point at all? Or no, not really. Do you know? They have been, from what I've seen, they've kind of been cutting people for all of this time. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like most of the time in terms of like cadavers, they're usually waiting for the body to be dead before right. they start like cutting it up. Whereas like we get into like a little bit more live action <laughs> later on when we get like chloroform and stuff like that, where like, right. That becomes a thing. Right. Um, so yeah. So then we get to the middle ages and we go back to this idea. <laughs> Oh dear, the Middle Ages. We go back to this idea that pain was a punishment from the gods and the healing of it was left to the mortals. Um, you know, and if they you like are... weren't sinning, then you wouldn't be in pain, basically. Like basically, you know, associating right. bad behavior with being in pain and having like that kind of right. experience. <laughs> and at this time, I believe I'm looking at my notes. Yeah, Descartes. Is that how you pronounce his name? I couldn't I figure out. I think it's pronounced De Descartes. Descartes. Descartes, okay, so Descartes, French scientist, uh, he writes in the Treatise of Man that painful stimulus on the surface of the body was transmitted by nerves. And he understood that like nerves must be some sort of like tube-like situation and the body was very machine-like. What that does though, is like takes away, again, these elements of like, well, what's happening in the mind, right? Like what's happening beyond, beyond the actual like stimulus of the brain and the body together like are there cultural reasons why somebody might feel pain or sociological reasons that somebody might feel pain like other psychological reasons why people might feel pain okay. um but but you know you're getting there they're figuring it out uh also this is like the first time that they start to document the use of narcotics for painful operations so i guess to your question this is when they start doing a little bit more operating on people when they're awake maybe not awake but they're alive they're like put they're like quote put under with put under anesthesia yeah. or something like that 
Right. And then around 1350, we start looking, Western culture starts viewing medical treatments coming from the East as related to the devil. So acupuncture and things of that nature are kind of looked at as evil and Europeans are mixing narcotics with herbs and applying them for inhalations and make people, I guess, pass out or so it's just not feel as much or they're directly putting them on the wound itself. Um, luckily we have the Renaissance, which is always good. <laughs> and during the Renaissance, they just realized pain is inevitable. It's a sign that you're alive. You're going to be in pain. Um, you know, Westerners start to use acupuncture, which is great, right? Because then we're looking at things that aren't just narcotics. Um, opium starts to be mixed with liquor to make it easier to consume, I suppose. Um, and there are essays being published on the use of acupuncture for pain relief, which is a good thing, because again, it kind of moves away from this other thing that was happening, which is sort of mixing opium with liquor and just making it easier for people to consume it, right? So, you know, um, once we get into the 1800s, morphine is being industrial produced. Uh, wow, you know, really? we're talking about the industrial era, right? And so there becomes this like, this is where things start to get a little political is because a lot of the pain management that we're seeing before it becomes like a medical field in the 1960s, is kind of just reacting to what was happening at the time. And a lot of what's happening, again, you know, at the end of the 1800s and early 1900s, is that you're dealing with a lot of people who are injured from the Civil War, and you're dealing with like hundreds and thousands of soldiers that are in pain, right, and are dealing with... Um, PTSD, but they didn't know what it was, probably. PTSD. Right? And so there's, you know, politics starts to play in where some of the doctors start to realize that maybe giving morphine and giving heroin and opium might be problematic <laughs> because they're starting to see that people are addicted to it. Politically, you have veterans and they can't go to work. They can't in get involved in this like industrial complex that's starting to be built, right? And so the government starts to think that maybe these people are just trying to get drugs, right? Which is an ongoing thing that's been happening now right. for a very long time. Maybe they're just trying to get drugs and maybe they're just trying not to work. And, you know, we're not, again, looking at the bigger picture of like, well, what's happening yeah. with this person psychologically, what's happening with this person at home, you know, where is their pain, right? Yeah. Socioeconomically, um, they start using chloroform for pain and childbirth and in surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, towards the end of the 1800s, they start to realize that morphine is addictive. Good for them. They also start <laughs> to, <laughs> they start to realize, uh, research more about like phantom limb pain. Cause you have a lot of people who of mm. course have lost parts of their bodies, um, chronic pain, neurological diseases. Like, so this is like the first time that they're really starting to focus on that. And it comes out of the fact that you have so many people that have been injured due to the civil war. That carries over into the early 1900s, where, again, we go back to war, right? And, you know, they're trying to figure out if these people are really sick, you know, are they really in pain? Are they just trying not to work? Um, you know, they realize that, they don't realize, but they accuse a lot of these people of being delusional mm -hmm. um, and hysteria. I don't know if, you know, I, I didn't look into it a lot for this episode, but I do know from previous research and school, right? Like hysteria and these terms were kind of built on women 
acting out of sorts, you know, and coming from the word like, you know, the, um, uh, what does the word hysteria come from? Let me look it up before I say something wrong. Hysteria. Well, hysteria comes, I mean, it's, uh, it's a variation of hyster being hysterical, like being unable to control your emotions, I think is the meaning of it. Right. So like, but you're talking about like oh. <laughs> where it oh, dear. Yes. Female hysteria, right. Was a medical di diagnosis for women, um, which was like anxiety, shortness of breath, faint, fainting, nervousness, sexual desire, fluid <laughs> retention. So basically oh PMS. <laughs> basically um, a woman going through her <laughs> menstrual cycle every month. Yeah. Right. And they and not having any it. support or understanding. Can you imagine like not having the cultural support or like the support of your partner? Or the Girl, I'm looking at Wikipedia right now and this shit parents. looks wild, but I will say that they called it the wandering womb. Wow. <laughs> it was to deceive, right? Like it stemmed, it stemmed from the word uterus, like hysteria, right? Like it just all, anyway, I digress. So they, you know, had to deal with trying to figure out whether or not people should be awake during surgery or should we just like give them chloroform? Should we give them ether? Should we give them morphine? All these things were legal, by the way. All these things were like, we're also dealing with the industrial complex. Like I said, like becoming more like what we recognize it to be. So you have marketing, you have people that are selling these things as a wonder drug. Heroin was right. a wonder drug, right? Um, because it made you not feel things anymore. And yeah. it wasn't until, you know, the 1960s again, where we start to really have a new idea of pain, mm -hmm. um, pain, understanding pain as a psychological and the physiological problem, understanding pain is more than just a symptom of something, understand that pain is individualized and that it can be helped through a multi-modal personalized plan. I kind of got sucked into watching painkiller and dope sick on on the streaming platforms and yeah, I've seen both of those they're oh my god it's crazy yeah. it's and I mean but right like both of them touch on the same thing which is ignoring addiction and marketing and uh what's the word I'm looking for taking advantage of people's mm -hmm. pain and again, pain is the oldest medical thing, right? So, or medical condition. And if we recognize that pain is a medical condition and that it does have it, that it's more than just the symptom, that it can be coming from anywhere for any reason, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that that person needs to have pharmaceuticals just to like make it go away. A lot of those people did have addictions, right? Yeah. And then you gave them these opiates and- they wanted more because you weren't were. addressing yeah. the problem right before you, I, anyway, I digress. I don't want to go off on the tangent on that, but you know, around the 1960s, like I said, is when we start to see actual pain management or pain management as a actual, uh, medical field. And so, you know, we're not talking about that long ago. We're talking about like 70, 70, what year is it? 70 years ago. Only like right? 60 years ago. Right. No. Right. Yeah, 60 years ago. And it wasn't until the 90s, you know, when we start to 
recognize that there's a need for more alternative treatments, but it was in reaction to something like Oxycontin coming onto the market and people realizing that it was having this very, very serious uh, uh, consequence on communities that were being taken advantage of because they were labor intensive communities. These were minors. These were people that were working with their bodies. Of course, they were going to be in pain. Yeah. I was literally just gonna, went, um, right? sorry, I was yeah, just going to bring up the fact, like you were talking about the, you know, the industrial era, era and how like opium and heroin and stuff and all those kind of medicines started to become more popular. And I was just thinking to myself, like, what were people doing for work at that time? People were in like mm -hmm. sweatshops, people were working, mm -hmm. you know, 15, 16 hour days, they were living in like, have you ever been to the tenement museum in New York mm -hmm. City, where you like get to see like how those people lived in this like little tiny apartment with like, eight family members and then they also used the tiny space for part of their like home business where they were making these like little textile things to then ship to like someone uptown to then make a separate piece of this outfit or whatever it was and you know it's just so wild to me like when you think about the amount of labor that a person was doing, you know, right. the average person, because most people were working class, even from a young age, like these kids, you know, before child labor laws, mm -hmm. they were working at like eight years old in a sweatshop or, uh, you know, mm -hmm. eight years old in their family business. Like, and it was, you know, just a life of labor and probably a lot of sitting because you were sitting over a table hunched over you know something doing fine little work with your hands I imagine that people had pain in their wrists and their fingers and mm -hmm. arthritis early on and things like that and you know nobody mm -hmm, was hydrating mm -hmm. like no one was drinking enough water <laughs> right and that's why I also bring up like childbirth right because at the time most of the women were just I shouldn't say just but most of the women were staying home Mm -hmm. and having children because that was the standard you'd had a lot of kids and childbirth was dangerous and childbirth was painful right and mm -hmm. so the significance of coming up with something like Lamaze right during the 1960s so that you didn't have to go under chloroform or into a twilight birth that's huge right yeah right that you didn't have to get drugged up. You can learn how to breathe. There was an alternative to you taking heavy, heavy drugs for you to be able to get through what was a very normal thing of childbirth. You get yeah. bearing kids, you know what I mean? And, you know, to your point, I think we're, you know, talking about city life, but a lot of people still lived, Long Island was farms, right? Like most people still lived on farms. Yeah. And the probability of you getting hurt on a farm pretty high. Mm -hmm. You're lifting heavy stuff you know? all day. You're doing backbreaking labor all Crazy day. big machines, bailers mm -hmm. and all sorts of, you know, stuff like there, there is a higher chance of you getting hurt on a farm, you know, by an animal or by yourself, you know, than there is of you getting hurt somewhere else, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, well, maybe. I mean, I think a lot of people that worked in like the sweatshop, you know, type, places in the cities had a risk a high risk of injury as well because you know especially back in the day there they probably there had more like, like repetitive 
Yeah, but there weren't also like the safety you know. regulations that they have today. Uh, like yeah. there were, you know, like chemicals and like hot burning metal things that they had to be working with all day or like, you know, mm. machines that were crushing things and like people's arms being cut off. And so, like, I imagine that that was pretty frequent actually being injured mm, in a yeah. place like that. So, you know, each each type of work and lifestyle probably had their own risks and things right. like that. So it's just interesting, right? Because- the fact is that pain is so individual mm-hmm. and the fact that it took us so long to figure that out, you know, and the, the, the idea that we had to wait for something like the opioid crisis for us to stop and be like, huh, is there an alternative to treating this pain? Maybe we should, right. Even though people could see the doctors could question whether or not these things were safe early on but there were no alternatives, right? And so, or they hadn't thought of any alternatives and they hadn't really researched pain enough to be like, hey, maybe drugs aren't the answer. But the fact that we had to wait for such a big thing to happen were before we stopped and said, hey, is there an alternative to dealing with pain other than giving people pharmaceuticals? It's kind of shocking. Yeah, I mean, you still see, you still see it often I mean I see it often as people trying to like you know numb the pain basically that's what they're the pharmaceuticals and the pain meds are doing is just numbing the pain right you're not actually dealing with what's causing the pain you're just stopping your body from feeling the the pain signals so I feel like that's still very common like even in 2023 you know people will you know pop pain pills and things like that fairly regularly without really addressing like hmm I wonder why my back is hurting like maybe there's something I need to adjust in my lifestyle or my day-to-day or maybe there's you know a breathing pattern that I can learn to calm my nervous system and like make better use of my diaphragm or something like that you know I think right that there's still like the science has definitely progressed but I don't know if the uh, general population has a greater or more detailed understanding of like the science Mm. behind pain and like what they can do on their own to help alleviate pain besides taking a pain pill. Right. Well, I think a lot of people lean into the rice method. Right. And now now we know that that, you know, science is interesting, right? Like I, I think that the thing I love about science is the thing that is also really frustrating about science, which is that Science is meant to be disproven. Things are proven, and then you're supposed to keep testing until you disprove it, right? And that's just the cycle of science. And that's why we are where we are, right? With all of our technology and all the things, right? People are like, hey, there's a better way, and I know it, and I'll figure it out. So, you know, Rice came around in 1978. This doctor gave Merkin released a sports medicine book, and he coined the acronym RICE, which stands for Rest, Ice, Compression, and Elevation which are supposed to represent the four activities uh, that you're using to treat acute athletic injuries. And that kind of just became the protocol. Yeah, it became the and norm. Like everybody accepted it. Like, oh yeah, this is the best thing. This to is do. the thing. And, and if you search, yeah. yeah. And if you search online now, it still comes up as like, here's, here's the standard traditional option. Up until a few years ago, it was because I think, was it 2015? I think 2015. he recanted. So it wasn't really that long. Eight years ago, the dude who came up with it then recanted it because of some 
other, other scientist, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which basically proved him wrong. And he was like, oh yeah, I guess we should, we should uh, reassess this because <laughs> ice and rest and compression probably isn't actually the best thing to do for every acute injury. And we need to reassess what is actually the best protocol for it. <laughs> and I find myself often getting into mild tugs of war with people especially of a certain generation mm -hmm. who were this has been the standard now yep. and since they were in their 20s and now you know we're talking like 30 years later they're like well <laughs> my knee hurts I'm gonna put some ice on it and I'm like yeah. well, well you know actually yeah basically what happened folks so that you're keeping up you know the subsequent research shows that rest and ice can actually delay recovery Mm -hmm. uh, mild movement is going to help the tissue to heal faster. Uh, the application of cold suppresses the immune responses that start and hasten recovery. And icing does help suppress pain, but that doesn't mean you should do it because usually athletes are ready to get back on the playing field. So it's not a preferred treatment for an acute injury. Um, whether you're an athlete or not right yeah um, I mean you if should... you think about it sorry if you think about it like ice yeah it feels good but it's just doing the same thing that like a pain med would do which is right. numbing the sensation so yeah you don't feel the pain anymore but it's not doing anything else besides that so like especially if you're an athlete and you get injured in a game or something and you're sitting on the sidelines then icing your knee or icing your ankle for like 20, 30 minutes. And then you're like, oh, it feels great now. I'm not injured anymore because I iced it because I don't feel it. And then you get back into the game. You're then causing probably more risk and more injury potentially because you can't feel what's going on in your body as you're moving around. And then that could lead to, you know, a worse injury or something like that. So definitely, especially if you're an athlete, like you need to reassess this rice <laughs> protocol and make sure that like you're doing what is actually effective and what could potentially help you get stronger in the long run versus you know just numbing numbing the pain and right numbing feeling of it and inflammation is different than swelling right if you have like a right. swollen something maybe yeah. maybe maybe you're going to treat that a little bit different but inflammation is a necessity for healing. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people of know. I don't think a lot of people know that they just think of inflammation as being bad, but actually, I mean, it is a sign that something is happening in your body. That's not normal. Right. But inflammation doesn't, it's not the issue, right? Inflammation is actually part of the recovery process. Your body needs to go through that process and that inflammatory response because it's essential for proper healing. It's how your body heals tissue and heals, right. you know, things that are wrong. So to stop that inflammatory response could definitely do damage to your tissues or, or make your healing process much, much longer because your body didn't get to do its natural, you know, process on its own. And I looked up some alternate approaches and there's a few different protocols that also are an acronym, which I really like. So the first one I found is called the PEACE protocol, and it stands for Protect, Elevate, Avoid Anti-Inflammatory Modalities, Compress, mm. and Educate. 
So that emphasizes prote uh, protecting the injured area, avoiding medications initially, and then basically only compressing if you have like, you know, an absolute need for it. But then the educate part is really the most important part where you're educating yourself on why you were injured, how you can avoid it in the future, and like what you need to do to make that part of your body stronger in order to heal and make sure that you come out of the injury stronger than before. And then another one that I found is called the LOVE protocol, and it stands <laughs> for load, optimism, vascularization, and exercise. So I actually like this one uh, the best because it really emphasizes movement and how movement um, can help uh, to heal an injury. And obviously you don't want to, you know, load the body if you're not ready for it. But the idea of loading gradually and making sure that you're approaching it cautiously, but using like specific techniques to load the joints or the tendons isometrically and then eccentrically and like training it back into its you know, stronger state. So I really liked that love protocol. And also because it has the optimism part, which is, you know, talking about your psychological state, your mental state, and how that can really contribute to your body's ability to heal after an injury, because it is a big part of it, you know, like, you know, if you think, oh, going to be injured forever, or you're like, really pessimistic about it, and you're just not able to get out of that negative mindset, then that's definitely going to have an effect on your body's ability to heal and to feel good. So I think that's, that's just super important to have that more optimistic mindset. Yeah. I was just thinking about something I read on the CDC about like low back pain and, you know, all the numbers skew towards people who have lower incomes having higher rates of back pain, particularly as you get older and the lower that your income is mm -hmm. because the tendency is for them to be working in jobs where they are, you know, they're stuck in one position or they're always standing or they're cleaning or they're always sitting or, you know, they're doing something repetitive or they're on the assembly line or, you know, and I just wish that there was some way to like hold the, especially the bigger companies responsible for like, providing something other than an OSHA sign saying that they need right. to like mop with their knees bent or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> lift from your, lift from your legs. Like, yeah, that's great. But you know, I wish that there was a way to support people that are essentially poor. Mm -hmm. And doing most of the manual know, work, manual labor of, you know, a company yeah, who don't have a lot of time and probably don't have anybody pushing them to support them in that way. Like, how do you change the psychosocial element here mm -hmm. when you know that the job and the, their literal social placement on the ladder is what's causing them this discomfort and this pain, you know, it's, it's tricky, right? Because yeah. there's a bigger, big, there's a bigger looming problem when you look at statistics, right? Because right. 
we're kind of in a vacuum, right? We're in a vacuum. Our clients are in a vacuum where we all understand this and we all can afford it. We have, we have resources. We have knowledge, knowledge. Yeah. We have, um, Tools time, disposal, time, time. Mm -hmm. Let me tell thing. you about the privilege of time. I love me some time, <laughs> you know, but it's not lost on me that I actually have time. Right. right. Like I, I said this thing about busting out this quick workout before I got on here, but the fact that I'm at home and that I could even bust out that workout is privilege, right? Like yeah. I, I, the fact that I have all these tools in my toolkit, right. is privilege. Um, yeah. and I just wish, I mean, you know, I, yeah, I, I mean, I think that the power to make those changes probably falls to unions you know, mm. like labor unions. And unfortunately, a lot of companies don't allow union labor. But I think if people demanded it more and like we're seeing, you know, obviously like the SAG after a uh, strike and their demands are more financial and things like that. But, you know, if people out there want that change and demand more support, I think that that would be the way to go because there is power in that. But yeah, besides that, I mean, like there's got to be organizations out there, maybe some nonprofits that do this kind of work, because I think it is super uh, essential to provide movement, like healing movement, breath work, especially meditation, stuff like that for people that are working these like, you know, 12 hour manual labor jobs every day. And the toll that it takes on their body and their mind is very intense and the medical yeah. costs right the, like the, the medical them, them. and like well and then like is there even any health insurance with that job or what does that health insurance cover is it just like um you know covering like essential preventative care or is it actual full coverage you know medical insurance and obviously that ties into a lot of things that are wrong with our country i think and the lack of health insurance and you know i think health insurance should be provided by the government for every person um, living in this country because other countries are making it work and they're thriving and I don't see why <laughs> I mean we could go into a whole other whole other discussion about that. <laughs> but um yeah I mean yeah like the lack of support for for most people is shocking and like you said time is probably probably one of the bigger issues that they have is that they literally don't have the time to take a yoga class or even take a 30 minute break like you're working an hourly job you get what a 15 minute break every you four get hours? 15 and then yeah. 130 if you're there for eight hours right so like you're gonna eat you're gonna drink right. water you're gonna go to the bathroom like that's what you're or gonna maybe you're gonna run time. and do a chore right yeah because you yeah. know, or pick up your kids from school during your 30 minute break and then come back or whatever you're doing. Like mm -hmm. you probably aren't making movement a priority of your day. And, you know, it's, it's really sad, honestly, that more people don't have that, you know, opportunity in their day to, to take that time for themselves. And if any of those people are listening, I hope that you can unionize and, <laughs> And demand some of that for yourself because every human deserves to have that kind of support for themselves, to create that kind of space for themselves, to be able to have a movement practice that feels 
nourishing for your body and your soul. I think everybody deserves that. I think it's so interesting because again, the last episode talking about like the history of exercise. Yeah. Talking about things repeating themselves, right? Because Mm -hmm. this has been a problem forever, right? right? Sedentary jobs and jobs where people aren't moving around and they don't have the ability to strengthen their bodies. And those are the people that were ending up with the biggest issues, right? Yeah. And so we're just seeing it in a different form, right? Like the the industry looks different and capitalism looks different, but it's still a problem, right? Where people are just not all equal in terms of their access to health, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. On that cheerful note. <laughs> On that cheerful note. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I just wanted to offer a little bit of info real quick before we finish this episode about pain in the body because we touched on it briefly but basically pain is a very complex physiological and sensory experience and it serves a crucial warning signal to protect our bodies from potential harm right so even though we've been talking about pain as you know kind of like this negative thing there are benefits to feeling pain and this is why we think like we just talked about the rice protocol opioids you know heroin painkillers like that kind of stuff is just numbing the pain and blocking your ability to feel the sensations and your the messaging to your nervous system uh, particularly the soma somatosensory system mm-hmm. and the brain and so i just wanted to emphasize that pain management is it's multifaceted you know it's not like just do this do that and then you won't feel any pain anymore obviously there's many things that contribute to pain and it could be mental it could be physical it could be environmental so um, we're going to talk a little bit more about movement in our next episode and how movement can heal the body and and alleviate pain and what you can do for yourself as a movement practice to help alleviate your pain and your injuries. But I just wanted to talk a little bit about the way that our body heals. And so the inflammation that we were talking about earlier, the inflammation and repair of pain after physical trauma, the body responds with inflammation, which is a natural process. Like we talked about, it helps initiate the healing process and it brings immune cells and nutrients to the injured area, facilitating tissue repair, removing debris. And it can also cause, you know, more fluids and liquids to be around the area, which is why it feels inflamed or like why you're like, Oh, this injured area feels bigger than it usually does. So that's why, you know, that is a necessary process because the cellular regeneration is basically what's happening on like, you know, that cellular level is what's causing the inflammation. And basically skin and bone have like relatively high regenerative abilities. So certain types of nerve cells can be replaced and they can basically take those damaged cells with new ones through cell division and a process called differentiation, which we won't get into. It's all like very complicated, sciencey kind of stuff. But yeah, and then one other thing I just wanted to talk about is um, natural pain modulation, they call it. It's 
During the healing process, the body's natural pain and modulation mechanisms, such as the release of endorphins and the activation of uh, descending pain pathways, they can help dampen pain signals and promote comfort. So if you're able to tap into those, um, those processes and those mechanisms and learn how to increase your endorphins naturally, then you're able to help alleviate pain and promote more comfort. And you won't have to take pain meds to do it. Obviously, you'll be doing it naturally. And there's ways to do that naturally. We'll talk about it in the next episode. And we'll talk about like movement and breath work and things like that. But um, yeah, those are just a few concepts that I wanted to end with just because they're kind of more science-based and like human biology based, but it's the reason why like the pain signals are so important. So you can know what's happening in your body. You can know that something is, you know, amiss, that something might be wrong. And then how do you take that information, take that signal, that pain signal, and how do you approach your, you know, your movement? How do you approach your lifestyle when you have an injury? How do you take that information and then act on it to help heal your body. I think that is basically the theme of this episode is like, what do, what does an individual need to do in order to address their pain and in order to understand why they're feeling pain? So yeah, does that make sense? What I just talked about? (laughs) I mean, it makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Might yeah. have to like run back and listen to it a couple times <laughs> when it makes sense. But yeah, no, I mean, you know, again, pain is so personal and yeah, and it's also very complex. Like it's very doing, complex. Yeah, mm-hmm. doing the research for this episode, I was like, there is so much I could get into on mm-hmm. like pain and the processes in the body. But I think, you know, like I was just saying, the most important thing to know is that pain is not necessarily a horrible thing it's a message to yourself from your body saying that something Mm -hmm. needs to be healed or something is, you know, dysfunctional. And then what do you do with that information and how do you approach that to heal yourself or to make yourself stronger? I think that is, you know, kind of a more optimistic uh, mindset to, uh, to pain and how you can, you know, take it into your own hands and like advocate for yourself, you know, with your own lifestyle choices and things like that to make sure that you're, you know, living a long life and not living in pain because it's not good. Living in pain is not normal. Like we talked about, it might be common, but being in chronic pain isn't normal. Right. I mean, but that depends, right? Because again, it's, it's specific to the person and people have pathologies that cause chronic pain, you know, right. sometimes but then you it could- is- phantom pain and I think that's what is very up in the air even in science right now is understanding why some people do have chronic pain and where it's coming from and is that a psychological problem or is that a physiological problem or is that a combination of both and you know I think the most important thing is like understanding what the options are for you right and like having a pretty good inner gauge on deciphering what kind of pain you're experiencing 
and not being afraid of getting intervention from a doctor or from a medical facility if that is what is necessary because not everything is going to be solved by doing some squats, right? Like right. there is some pain that you can take it to your own hands and then there is some pain that's not. There is some pain, you know, if you're a cancer patient, you know, there's pain that you are going to be feeling that you will have to mitigate with very strong meds, you know, and and you may not have the energy to do a lot of physical work, right? Which is also going to compound you not feeling great. So you will have to have a team that specializes in what you're going through at that stage, right? If you have MS, that's a neurological problem that you will need someone or a bunch of people to help you with because you can't just work with any trainer and you're not going to be able to work with just any Pilates instructor. You're going to need to work with somebody who understands neurological disorders, right? And understands pain from that standpoint. So, you know, I think that it's most important to understand what you're feeling and to be open to a lot of different routes. And, you know, if it is something that you do have to have surgery for, or the doctor says, Hey, you might have to have surgery, but maybe you should try a Pilates class first, right? Like, and try the Pilates class because who the hell wants to have surgery if you don't need to have it, right? Like there's just... Mm -hmm. There's just, it's so personal and it's so specific to whatever the person is dealing with in that moment. And it's just understanding that there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat, like I'm always saying, right? And then knowing which cat is yours, right? Like which, which avenue are you going to go down and which is the right choice for you and understanding what the difference is between pain that is manageable on your level and pain that is not manageable from your level and that you might need to seek out medical help for. And, you know, that, that's really, I think the challenge for a lot of people, mm -hmm. because everybody has a different perceived level of pain, uh, tolerance, right? Yeah. I did and a lot of research think, actually, I didn't get onto the topic, but pain tolerance and how, uh, you know, that is very individualized and someone might find something extremely painful and the same thing happening to a different person would be maybe like a one out of 10 and like right. why does that happen and it's basically dependent upon many different things and a person's life experience and all sorts of right. things about their body and genetics and things like that it, it could right. totally just be you know psychological too and like if you're anticipating pain does the pain increase and things like that and right. if you're anticipating uh, no pain does it then and you feel something and it is actually painful does it then decrease the pain or increase it it depends on the person right. and you know some people are afraid of going to the doctor they feel things and they they just don't want to find out that it's something bad and sometimes it's nothing bad it's just something that you're feeling sometimes it's anxiety right sometimes yeah. you think you're dying and it turns out it's anxiety right like it's just yeah but unless you are willing to break down that fourth wall and talk to somebody, you're going to be suffering alone. Right. And so hopefully that's the message that, you know, I, I've helped people understand, which is, you know, pain is an absolute. We're all going to deal with it in some way, shape or form. Science is still unsure about pain. Yeah. So, you know, understanding that don't sit alone and try to figure it out on your own try to talk to people about what you're feeling, try yeah. to understand what you're feeling, right? And and try to resolve it, you know, with obviously the least amount of intervention that you can. And don't be afraid if you have to go to a doctor. It is what it is. 
yeah, yeah. I think there's this myth not sure exactly when it started but I heard it a lot as a kid is that like pain is in the mind you know oh, and like God. you don't have to like you can just like push through it and you know there's kind of like that mentality in in working working out too that like no pain no gain kind of mentality and that myth of like a workout isn't beneficial unless like you're really feeling like the burn and like really feeling the pain of the exercise and things like that and you know and that's like a whole other myth that we could bust but yeah where was I going with that basically I was (laughs) basically I was gonna say you don't need other people to validate your pain for uh, any reason you know like to like you were saying if like you're afraid to go to the doctor or like you're afraid that other people aren't going to believe you and your pain. Like I know so many women, especially that have seen multiple doctors. Like I myself have seen multiple doctors about pain in, you know, like my pelvis, gastrointestinal and, you know, like painful periods and things like that. And doctors just being like, yep, that's normal. Like you just have a heavy period or whatever. And then they end up going through doctor after doctor after doctor and finally finding someone who will investigate what is actually going on and they end up having like severe endometriosis and being diagnosed with that and finally having an answer and it's just like you shouldn't you know there's so many things that are messed up with that you shouldn't have to go through eight to ten doctors in order to find out what's going on in your body but if you do have pain and no one is like validating your pain, like find someone who will listen to you, find someone mm-hmm. who will, you know, listen to everything and and actually do the work to help you because it is important for you to understand what's going on in your own body. You know, that's, that's empowering to have the answers and to make sure that you have the ability to understand what's happening in, in your body and things like that. So yeah, we could probably have a whole episode about women's health and the charade that is women's health because right. that is very common for women. Oh my god, did you just see did you just see the study that came out that was like um tampon, the ability of absorbency oh, no, the absorbency of the tampons finally were tested with blood just recently. And tampon absorbency is inaccurate because they were testing with water before then. And it's like, what? You've been testing tampon absorbency with water? It's a completely different, like, (laughs) texture and thickness and just, like, it's completely different. Like, why would you think that that, because men were doing these tests. Why would you think that that would be equivalent to actual menstrual blood and the absorbency? And like, I was always shocked. Why am I going through three super tampons in like four hours? What is happening? This isn't right. And it's because they fucking tested it with water. (laughs) Uh, I thought you were going to talk about the forever chemicals that were inside of the tampon wrappers and the things underwear and... Oh, I heard yes. about that too recently. Yeah, it's. I think okay. my my um friend got her class action six dollars uh, oh, nice. from <laughs> life changing. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, it's something not to get off tangent because it's nothing. Well, maybe because it is a little bit about pain. I 
had cramps mm. until I stopped using tampons. Ooh. And now I don't have cramps with my cup. Oh, interesting. You think I it's like probably very, those forever chemicals maybe in the reverse? I have very intense cramps. Now, do I still feel my body doing stuff like my uterus or whatever's happening? Yes, I feel I feel things in the area. But I mean, I used to have like intense cramps mm. and literally two cycles after stopping my tampons that went away. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. I have to try a cup again. I haven't tried a cup <laughs> since um, having Archie. <clears throat> and I actually have only had my period a few times oh, interesting. since uh, eight months postpartum. Like it's not been regular. I think I don't know. My oh. body's just been like really slow at like getting back into having his period, into my period. But I've Mine had it came only back like clockwork. I've had it only like three times since oh. having Archie. Yeah. Yeah. And it was eight months before I had my first one again. Yeah, mine was three months, and it's every twenty-one to twenty-four days, like clockwork. Wow. Yep. Yep. Mm. Fun. <laughs> Yes, fun times. Yeah, anyway, fun times. anyway, I hope that this was resourceful for people. I hope that understanding that pain has been an absolute part of our human experience. Yeah. Uh, and it's a necessary a thing. Bit, yeah. And it's a necessary thing. And to help us survive, we needed pain to understand, you know, if something no, yeah. went wrong, like eating those berries. No, those are poisonous. No. Yo, don't don't eat them. touch the fire. It's hot. That shit will burn you. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> So onwards and upwards uh, for September for pain yeah. month. We'll have and more we'll... pain pain info coming at you. <laughs> Hopefully it's very titillating for you. A good pain in your ass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> not literally. Not literally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we just and... want to be figurative pains in your asses, <laughs> not literal ones. And we'll catch you on the flip side. Yeah. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate your support and we would love for you to rate, review, and subscribe to Titillating Talks. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Titillating Talks and feel free to reach out to us via email, ttpodcastgals at gmail.com with any questions or suggestions. We would love to hear from you. Titillating Talks is produced by us, Hallie and Laura. And our music is by Cruise Cruise. We hope you found this episode titillating.